today's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 38, verses 1 through 30. Again, that's Genesis chapter 38, verses 1 through 30. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. He and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered herself, her face, he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, 
please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is God's word. Quite a story, huh? Well, two weeks ago, Pastor Eng uh, visited us and spoke uh, from how Abraham, this is uh, Judah, who's in our story today, his grandfather, Abraham, um, was willing to give what was most precious to him, his son Isaac, whom he loved, and uh, as an offering to the Lord God, in a sense, as a burnt offering, meaning he would be willing to kill him. And yet Abraham was willing to do this because he had trusted in God's promise so much so. Uh, let me do this. Hey, there you are. Yeah. So much so that he knew that God's promise to, through Isaac, his son, would provide him with uh, descendants that would be so numerous that you couldn't count. So he was willing to offer Isaac as a burnt offering, knowing that God's promise was definitely going to be true. But he had no idea how and why God was asking him to do this. He just trusted God's promise, and he went ahead and was going to do that. And you know the end of that story. And then last week, we looked at Abram's, Abraham's grandson. Let's see, Abraham, Isaac, yeah, Jacob, his grandson. And Jacob's life and how he was a deceiver grabber and also this specific story of how he wrestled with the Lord God physically uh, and how he hung on to God, hoping for an assurance of this blessing of this, his descendants to be this multitude beyond measure, but also for protection against his brother Esau. And today's text is significant because it introduces this woman Tamar. Tamar is one of five women that are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And she's the first woman mentioned. Let me read what that says there. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Significant that a woman's name is brought out in a genealogy. And God worked through Tamar, we saw, and just read to us. Thank you, Melody, for reading that long passage. But he worked through Tamar to reveal Judah's unrighteousness, his waywardness, how he had walked away from the Lord, and to provide the lineage of us having a son of the lineage for the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can see how God's grace is working through this mess of a story. So today's text is the story concerning one of Jacob's sons, Judah, and his, Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar. And actually, this story is nestled inside a much 
longer story of Joseph, which is, who's also a son of Jacob. And uh, Joseph's story starts the chapter before ours in 37, uh, chapter 37, and it goes all the way to the end of the book. So we'll be hearing about Joseph in the next few sermons after this. But this chapter 38 is kind of like a break in the story of Joseph. Well, maybe not really a break. It kind of gives context of what God is doing um, in other places other than just in Joseph's life, uh, especially in the life of Judah, because Judah uh, is very key. He plays a key role in Joseph's story at points at the beginning, which well, I'll tell you in a minute. I'll give us some context here for our, our chapter 38, but also at the end of Joseph's story too. Judah plays a significant role. So let me go into some context for our, our chapter 38. So we learned that Joseph's mother is Rachel. Now, Rachel is one of four wives of Jacob. Yeah, this guy had four wives. Uh, and Joseph, and well, Rachel was his favorite wife out of the four. And Joseph was his favorite son out of the 11 at this point um, in the story, but he was the youngest son. So Joseph had 10 older brothers, and you can see. So he had four wives. Leah and Rachel were sisters, and then Bilhah and Zilpah were the maidservants of each Leah and Rachel that came along when they were married, uh, when they married Jacob. And so those were his four wives. He treated them all as wives because he had children through all four of them. And as I said, Joseph, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son, so much so that he gave Joseph a special multicolored coat. And this caused jealousy of his ten older brothers. They were jealous that their father was favoring Joseph, so much so. And then on top of that, we learn in chapter 37 that Joseph had these dreams that he openly shared with his family that it seemed to indicate that his ten older brothers would bow down to him uh, some point in the future. And so, you know, you can guess that that didn't go over too well with his 10 older brothers either. So they, they basically hated Joseph in many ways at this point. And then the story goes on that one time his 10 older brothers were watching their father's flocks at some distance from where the father and, and Joseph were staying, living. And so the father says, hey, go and uh, check on your brothers, see how they're doing. So they, he sends Joseph to check on his brothers. Now, it's interesting, the brothers are doing all the work, right? And Joseph's at home with his father, so that's the favor. And, uh, and so he goes, and as Joseph is at a distance coming toward his brothers, and they see him coming, they begin to plot among themselves to kill Joseph. And so when Joseph arrives, they grab Joseph, they rip off his multicolored coat, which of course he was wearing because, you know, he's kind of flying, you know, I think Joseph's a little naive here, but he, they rip off his coat, they throw him in this empty cistern, it's a place where water collects, but it's dry, so, you know, he's, he's still alive. He's not drowning in there. And they're, they, while they're, they do that while they figure out what's the next step to do. And then while they're talking among each other, this caravan starts to come toward them and pass them by of traders going on their way to Egypt. And then here's where Judah comes into the story. Judah gets the idea that, hey, rather than having the blood of our own brother on our hands by killing him, why don't we get rid of him by selling him to these traders in, to be their slave and then they will get, they'll take him down to Egypt, and he'll be out of our, our mess. You know, he won't be in our lives anymore. We'll get rid of him that way. So the, all the brothers say, yeah, that's a great idea. So we won't be guilty of his blood. So they, they sell 
Joseph for 20 shekels of silver to these traders to go down to Egypt. Now just imagine how traumatic that was for Joseph. Not to just be ridiculed by his brothers, but to be betrayed and sold into slavery. And then think about the screams. Imagine the screams and the pleas Joseph gave to his brothers when this was happening, this transaction was happening, and the scars and the impact it had on his brothers. Their, their memory, it was burned into their memory, that image of their brother screaming for, for mercy while they were taking him away to Egypt. You know, this, this weighed deeply, I'm sure, on the mind and hearts of his brothers. And then the ten brothers took the multicolored coat that they had, they put goat's blood on it, and they went back to their father, and they said, they made up the story and said, hey, dad, um, we found this on our way, doing, taking care of you. And, and then Jacob saw that it was Joseph's coat, and he just assumed that some wild animal must have torn jo- Joseph to pieces and killed him. And so the scriptures say that Jacob's sorrow was deep, Grief and sorrow were so intense that, that nobody could comfort him. And it was just like this dark cloud over the whole family clan. And you, you think how much that must have just hung over the brothers who lived and worked with their father during that time. So this brings us up to the text, which uh, we are looking at today, chapter 38. And so our text starts saying this. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite, whose name was Herah. And in this story of Judah and Tamar, we see how God is working for the good of Judah and Tamar. And we see his grace throughout this story, working kind of in the background, but we can see it in multiple ways. And Tamar is the courageous one for confronting Judah with how he had wronged her in multiple ways. God worked through Tamar to confront Judah's sinful heart at this moment in his life. And so this is a story of God's grace working in the midst of this sinful mess that we see. God is always at work for our good. This is the truth we see here in this story of Judah and Tamar. This is God's grace at work, especially during the times of our sinful disobedience. Now, let's look at Judah's sinful actions in this story. All right, the first one occurred before our text in chapter 37 because it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery so they would not be guilty of their brother's blood on their hands. Of course, they were guilty of selling him into slavery, but I guess that's not as bad as killing him. And so that was Judah. It was on him, and that weighed heavily on Judah. And think about it. Judah knew, as his brothers did when they were with their father, after they had done this and deceived their father, that every time they saw their father mention or be sad or sorrowful, they knew their deception was the cause of their father's sorrow. And so Judah wanted to remove himself from that. He, he just wanted to go away from that kind of environment. And so the text says it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to this certain Adullamite whose name was Harah. So Judah left his brothers and his father to live near a Canaanite town. 
and this friend named Hurrah. So Hurrah was an Adulamite, and that just simply means he was a man who was from this town, Adullam. And this, we know that the Adullam was a Canaanite town. Uh, there was nothing wrong with Judah having Canaanite friends. Uh, Abraham had Canaanite friends that actually helped him, if you remember the story when he went and rescued Lot. But Abraham influenced his friends as a righteous man that followed the Lord God. He did not adopt the Canaanite ways. But Judah here, we see in our story, was different, where he adopted the Canaanite ways. And first and foremost example is he actually married a Canaanite woman and had three sons through her. And this idea of him having three, this report of three sons shows that the progression of time is happening. And this is all during this period of time where Joseph is enslaved in Egypt. So this is during, it's like a, a story giving us a parallel story of Judah and Tamar while Joseph is still in Egypt being enslaved. The second sinful act of Judah was his negligence of his son's wickedness. We see this in the story right up front, right? Judah chose Tamar to be the wife of his oldest son, Ur. So there was arranged marriages at this time. And so he chose Tamar, and he must have chose her well, right? You know, you don't just pick anybody for your firstborn son. So he chose Tamar, and verse 7 says, But Ur, this is Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. That's all we have. He was wicked. He must have been pretty wicked for God to just put him to death. I mean, everybody's wicked. Everybody's heart is, you know, selfish and evil. But this guy, God just knocked him out because he was so wicked. Custom was then for his brother, Onan, to take Tamar as his wife and then have sons produced through her so that they can pass on, uh, keep the name of Ur going forward and take his inheritance as the firstborn. But, we see in verses 9 and 10, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Ouch. So Onan refused to impregnate his brother's wife, Tamar, and he ejaculated onto the ground instead. I mean, it was an intentional act of of him not wanting to carry on this custom that is to actually to protect the woman at those, in those days and did not want to reduce actually his share of the family inheritance because his firstborn brother now was dead. So now he is going to grab that guy's inheritance because he didn't have any sons. So the double portion that goes to the firstborn is now him, right? So, hey, I mean, he won the lottery, you know, and, and, and if he has sons through Tamar, his dead brother's wife, then the firstborn would pass on to them. So he is now, he would be reducing what he gets in this sense, he, and it wouldn't be his offspring. So he, he actually does not impregnate Tamar. Um, and even worse than this, Onan is using Tamar for his own self-gratification. You know, he could have just refused to have sex with her, but no, he didn't choose that. He did something even worse. He wanted the fun without the fatherhood. That's, that's how he is using it. So God judged him for his wicked heart by putting him to death, which is all here in the story, right? But Judah 
seemed to be totally unaware of the wickedness of his sons. I mean, we are, we're reading the story, right? But at this point, Judah didn't think that his sons died because of God's judgment. He thought they died because tomorrow was just bad luck. Man, every son I give this lady, they die. You know, this is his superstitious thinking. We see this in verse 11. And then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Judah blamed Tamar for the deaths of his sons, not the judgment of God. And he thought she was bad luck and was afraid then to give Shelah to her. So he gives this false promise to her that he will, when Shelah gets old enough, I'll give you uh, to him as husband, and then you can have heirs through uh, him. But he deceived Tamar by giving this false promise because he never gave Shelah to Tamar. See, sending Tamar to her own father's house was unfair to Tamar because Judah did not release her to marry other men. He told her to wait as a widow in mourning until my youngest son would marry you. So she was in limbo. She was stuck as a widow in mourning until she married her father-in-law's next son. Judah was not, um, he did not want Tamar in his mind. He didn't want her around in the family. You see, in those days, women needed protection because of the way society was. And so when a woman, would, to be protected, a woman would be under her father's protection and her brother's. But then when she married into another family, then the father and brothers of her husband would be also her protection when her husband died. But for Judah then to send her back to her father's household, he's literally saying, I don't want anything to do with her. Even though he still had in the custom responsibility for her because she married into his family, but he was literally physically communicating this. And so he deceived Tamar and cast her out of his household unjustly. So that was the second thing. And then the third sinful act of Judah was that he had sex with what he thought was a prostitute. We see this in the story, and we learned that in the course of time, Judah's Canaanite wife died. We never know her name. We just know she's the daughter of Shua, the Canaanite. And after this time of mourning, he was over. He and his friend Harah went to Timnah, where his sheep shearers were. So he, he has sheep that are going to be you know, taken, sheared. I don't know if anybody here ever seen a sheep sheared? I have. No, I didn't think. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Cool, it's pretty cool. So it's kind of like harvest time. It's a, it's a celebration because um, it's like they're getting the harvest of the wool of their sheep, so the, all this wool then can be either used or sold, and so it's like festive. It's a festive time. And um, so notice the contrast here, though, that Judah's time of mourning was over. It says in our text that he was comforted, right? And so then he went out with his friend for this festive time. But Tamar's stuck as a widow in mourning forever. You know, she's just in this limbo that Judah has placed her in. There's this contrast here. And, and we know this because she's still wearing her widow's clothing. And this is years after, you know, Onan died. 
And so she's stuck because of what Judah has, how he has treated her. And we're told this, that Tamar had to take off her widow's garments to put on her other clothing because she wanted to go sit on the roadside on the way to Tama, uh, Timnah to, to hopefully uh, get the attention of Judah. Why, though? Why did she want to do this? Well, verses 14 through 16 explain, saying, For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, so now on, she's on the roadside, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So, in the end, Judah had sex with his daughter-in-law and thinking she was a prostitute. So how did, how did Tamar come up with an idea like this? I mean, you don't just kind of think of an idea like, hey, maybe I can have sex with my father-in-law, you know, um, or trick him, something like that. No, it's probably because we think that Judah must have had this kind of reputation of, you know, dealing with prostitutes. How would you think of something like this? And if you notice, she didn't proposition him. He propositioned her. She just sat there. She didn't seduce him. She was all covered up. Their, her body was covered up. He's the one who caught the eye and then approached her. So, you know, this is, I mean, it's, there, it's on both of them, right? She's deceiving now Judah. Judah deceived her with a fa- false promise about his son. And so this whole story is kind of a mess. But she was desperate to fulfill her duty as a wife to her first dead husband to produce an heir. Uh, that was her duty, and she wanted that, even though she had been mistreated by her father-in-law. And note that Tamar did not uh, lure Judah. That's the key here. Judah was the one who propositioned her. And so uh, she deceived Judah, and he impregnated her one time. And here we see God's grace again in the story. He's providing a lineage to the Savior through this mess of, of humanness. Which leads us to Judah's fourth sinful act, Judah's sexual hypocrisy, right? Judah was unaware of his own sinfulness, but quick to judge Tamar when he found out she was pregnant. Oh, he was livid. How could she do that? You know, and and when Judah discovered uh, this, he commanded her to be burnt to death, not even giving her an opportunity to defend herself. You know, this is hypocrisy. Judah's hypocritical critical in this way, where he could visit a prostitute, but Tamar is stuck being a mourning widow forever, it seems, without any end. So here we see God's grace being acted out through Tamar. God confronted Judah's hypocrisy and gave Judah the opportunity to confess what he did. He is confronted with the truth about himself by, through Tamar. And he is given the opportunity to confess. Listen to verses 25 and 26 again. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shalah, and he did not know her again, which just means he did not have sex with her again. See, Judah confessed here, confessed and acknowledged Tamar's actions were more righteous than his own. He actually had a heart change at this moment. I mean, he was going to burn her, 
And now he's giving her honor by acknowledging her deeds as more righteous than his own. I mean, both of their deeds were kind of messed up, right? But <laughs> at least her intent was more righteous than his, he's saying there. And this whole story is a mess of deception and wickedness and injustice that we see. Tamar is the bright light in all of this in the sense of taking a huge risk by pretending to be a prostitute to hopefully fulfill her duty as being the wife of Ur, originally her dead husband. And if she was recognized by anyone practicing prostitution, even though she never did it, right? She was just doing this to try to trick that. She would be ruined because she was a widow in mourning and here she is practicing prostitution on the roadside. You know, if anybody recognized her, she would have been ruined. She took a huge risk. And we see God's grace was working through this whole mess. He worked through Tamar to continue the lineage toward the coming Messiah, and at the same time, he used her to confront Judah's sinful heart. He said, wake up, man. <laughs> what you're doing is messed up, you know? And, and God just, in his grace, does that. This story is an example of the truth stated in Psalm 33 that says, the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever the purposes of his heart through all generations. You see, God is always working for our good. Even when we mess up, screw up, you know, we do things that are just totally dishonorable to the Lord, it doesn't stop his plan. He's going to keep working it through. And matter of fact, he already anticipated we were going to do that because he knew ahead of time. No, it, 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 his plan will never be interrupted or stopped by anything we do, whether we're faithful to him or unfaithful to him. His work continues through all generations. And this story of Judah is very important because we see how God confronts Judah's sinful heart and gives him the opportunity to confess, just like God did with Adam and Eve, right? When he knew that they had eaten already of the fruit. But what did he do? He said, hey, where are you? And then he even said, you know, they didn't say anything. Oh, we were, you know, we heard you and we covered up because we were naked. You know, he gave them the opportunity to say, hey, fess up. Give them the opportunity to confess their sin. And he does this with, that with each of us. That's by his grace. Otherwise, he could just zap us, <laughs> you know, fry us, lightning. You uh, could do that. But he gives us the chance to confess. And he did this with Judah. And this change of heart we see here in Judah, this change where he says, oh, I am unrighteous, basically. I mistreated you. I didn't do what I should have done as an honorable and righteous man. Um, it's just the beginning catalyst to the big change we see later in the story of Joseph that's coming where he actually gives his own, willingly offers his own life in place of his youngest brother, Benjamin. He says, take me instead. And that is totally different than what he did to Joseph where he sold his brother into slavery to get rid of him. It's a huge change, but we begin to see the change of heart here. God is working for our good. God is working for our good. Believe this and be comforted, no matter what you're facing today, no matter what happens in our lives. God is working for our good. It's kind of like what Paul, the Apostle Paul says in other words in Romans. Romans 8, 28, he says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And Jesus said, in giving us comfort, that 
my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. So God is always working for our good. Always. No matter what we do, what other people do in our lives, no matter how an election turns out, no matter if we're single or if we're married, no matter if we do something that just screws up our life big time, God is always working for our good. He is. This is the truth of Scripture. He's working through all of it. And whenever we are confronted with our own sinfulness and weaknesses, which we will be, it is a blessing of the Lord. And it is an act of His grace to do so. Because when we are confronted with this truth about ourselves, He is saying, come to me and just confess, admit. Because you're already forgiven in Christ Jesus. You just need to trust me. Come to me and follow me. It's an act of his grace. He wants us to confess and turn from our sin and follow him and his ways. And then, and then, and only then, will we truly be able to live in the freedom that God wants for us. You see, life is messy. It's hard because of our own sinfulness and other people's sinfulness. It's a mess. But Jesus is our only hope because he is once and for all taken care of sin by his death on the cross. And when we trust in him, then we will experience that freedom in the midst of the mess that we live in. God is working for our good. It's kind of like somebody has said, when you make a cake, you know, you have all kinds of different ingredients of a cake. Here are some, possibly. But if you, if you ate the different ingredients, some of them taste pretty bad by themselves, right? Have you ever tried eating just flour by itself? It's not very good. Or raw eggs, or maybe drinking some vanilla. You know, that's not going to be very good for you. But you put it all together, right? And you make something that's tasty, <laughs> delicious. And when God works all the bitter ingredients of our lives together, he, as someone has said before, and it's not my quote, it says, God takes the bitter, he puts it in the batter to make you better. You know, you know it's just kind of a fun little statement. But why does he do this? It's because God is a good God. God is good. Right. All the time he's good. He's always working for our good as well. And consider it's kind of like this work of a sculptor. You know, she begins by choosing a rough chunk of like white marble and she intends to make from this uh, a beautiful statue. And then in her mind, she knows exactly what she's going to do, and she predestines the rough stone, and she imagines what the image is going to be after she's completed this sculpture, right? And it's going to be a thing of beauty. And so that determination guides her work as she begins to chisel and work at it and chip away at this rough marble stone, and she remains at this task until it's finished. And in the end, there's a piece of tremendous beauty. You know, in the same way God is at work in our lives, He is chipping and chiseling away at you and me. And sometimes it's going to be pretty uncomfortable with all the bitter things that happen to us or we cause ourselves. And right now, in a sense, we're still rough and uncut. We're this, this rock. And He's transforming us into the image of His beautiful son, Jesus Christ. That's why we're called Christians. We're little Christs. 
He's, God is working for our good through life and whatever we're struggling through. But the one big problem is that, we ha- that we have is that our good and God's good is not the same in our own minds sometimes. Because our good, we think, you know, we want to be, we want happiness, we want fulfillment, we want peace, we want long life, we want comfort, we want success, right? But that's not necessarily what God considers good for us because God is at work in us and through us and by everything that happens to us, he is transforming us into the image of his son. And that also very much includes the horrible things in life. He is still working in us and through us and for our good. Because God is good. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> yeah, let's pray. It's tremendous, Lord, that we can know that you are good, that you are glorious, that you are working nonstop. Because you don't need the rest. You don't need to take a break and get your breath. And Lord, that you know all things before they happen. You anticipate our screw-ups. You anticipate what we'll do, what we'll say, what decisions we make. And it doesn't thwart your purposes or plans. But Lord, we can trust and know that you, the good God, are always working for our good. As we see in Judah and Tamar's story, Lord, may you be praised by what we do and say this week, knowing this truth, no matter how hard this week is. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.